Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to discuss a Christian theology of God as Trinity. We're going to discuss not only the theology of that, but also the false views of the Trinity and the practical implications of this theology. We know that Trinitarianism is a long-held doctrine, and it is obviously generally rejected by cults often, but it's also agreed upon by Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Orthodox Christians. So the question is really, why does it matter? Why is this such a big deal? So to start us out, Aaron, could you walk us through a history of Trinitarian theology? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I really enjoy discussing uh, theological matters, but I'm a practical thinker as well, and I'm always looking for the connection. So if God says it, we believe it, but what are the implications of it? Like, why does God say it? There's no throwaway lines in the Bible. There's no filler language in the Bible. God doesn't just throw stuff out there because he wanted to fill up the Bible and make it heavier, but gives us truth, gives us revelation, delivers to us information about himself and salvation and eternal life for a reason. So I want to discuss the Trinity, uh, orthodox doctrine of Trinitarianism, but yes, also discuss the practical implications of it. And there are several that I'm really excited to get to. So I want to start off with a bit of a, a history. So we know that God, first of all, reveals himself progressively through scripture. So the ultimate authority that we appeal to as Christians is the 66 books of the Christian canon, the word of God. But as we read through the scripture, we're reading about individuals that at different times in history received special revelation from God written by prophets and apostles for the benefit and blessing of God's people. And when we are reading then some of the earlier books, we wouldn't expect just based upon those earlier books to have all the information that we now have because we have all these later books. So by the time the Bible is canonized, by the way, when we talk about canonization, we're, we're not talking about determining which books should be in the Bible, but acknowledging which books are, in fact, the divine word of God. So we now have at our advantage all 66 books. The, the rule of scripture has been, has been affirmed, has been acknowledged, has been recognized. We call it the canon of scripture. And so when we are reading through scripture, we, we're building our understanding of who God is, for example, and when we get to the end of it, we then have the benefit of going back and reading from the beginning with the knowledge that we've received later in the text. Mm -hmm. So the more we receive, we call this progressive revelation. The more we receive, the more we're able to read even the earlier material with, with greater clarity. So for example, when you get to John 1 and you read about the word becoming flesh, the word was God, the word was with God and was God, that echoes something we read earlier, which is Genesis 1. And we're like, oh, oh, okay, I get it. Now, when God spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1, 
That is the divine word. That is the one that we now know as the eternal son who's speaking the world into existence. So in the opening verses of Genesis, we see, because we have the advantage of having a closed canon, Trinitarianism, even though if we just started in Genesis, we wouldn't necessarily have a particularly well-developed view of what we call uh, the Trinity. So the most, when we move through scripture, the, the most obvious like definitive declaration of Trinitarianism comes from Jesus at the Great Commission, mm-hmm. where he commissions us to go into the world and preach the gospel and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have that Trinitarian uh, baptismal statement made. And then when we move through scripture, we, we learn more about who Christ is and who the Holy Spirit is. We have later statements about God reconciling the world to himself through Christ. So clearly, something was there in the scriptures that later Christians in the second and third century and fourth century felt needed to be put into language that could be agreed upon. And the word that they used, it's not a biblical word, but that's fine. The word that they used to bring together what they were seeing in scripture is the word Trinity. And this was a word that was uh, put forward by Tertullian, an an early church father in sort of the mid uh, second century. So it would be wrongheaded for us to say, in the history of Christianity, there was a time when we invented the doctrine of the mm-hmm. Trinity. No, we did invent the word, but we're inventing the word to try to describe something that we see in Scripture. And when we get to the end of Scripture, we read Scripture backwards and forwards. We systematize. We look to different books. We extract from it various revelatory statements about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we try to then describe it in Uh, theological terms that are understandable. What happened is that the early church fathers, especially in the second and third century, so the 100s and the 200s, started to talk about this. And we have various church fathers that that are talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, uh, we have early church fathers like Tertullian actually kind of inventing this word, uh, Trinity, in order to describe what he was seeing in scripture. And this this made sense because he was reading the Bible we're reading. And when you read the Bible, you notice that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are referred to by titles or granted attributes, acknowledged to have certain attributes that are reserved for God. So if you're reading the Bible and you don't even know the word Trinity, but you're like, oh, that's interesting. Jesus is called God. Jesus is called Lord. The Father and Son are called I Am in Scripture. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit receive divine attributes like Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. They're glorified. They are worshipped by the people of God. They are prayed to. They're baptized into the name of. So you're seeing that in scripture and you step back and you think to yourself, okay, so how does this all come together? And so by the fourth century, Christians were kind of forced now to articulate in theological language what they saw in scripture because 
there was a heresy, a falsehood that they felt uncomfortable with being taught that was called Arianism. And Arianism essentially is a false doctrine that denies the eternality of the sun. So they would believe, the Arians believed, that the sun was the first being that God created, but he wasn't God. So it's like, okay, we have a problem. We see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit receiving divine recognition in Scripture. The Arians are saying that Jesus is not eternal, so we got to deal with this. So at the Council of Nicaea in 325, they wrestled with language. What's the best language? We want to be precise. What's the best language to bring Christians together, to clarify, and to rebut false doctrine? And at that council, as they wrestled with language, they determined that one word that would be really helpful to clarify the eternality of the Son, the, div the divinity of the Son, and by definition, the divinity of the Spirit, was the word homoousian. So that came into use. That means one homo essence, ousian. Another word that was batted around is the word homoe ousian, and they rejected that. So ho homoe ousian was this false notion that, well, the son is like the father, but he's not of the same essence as the father. So they're, they're sitting around, they're discussing, what does the scriptures actually teach? Does it teach that the son is sort of like the father, but not of the same essence? And they're like, no, that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches homoousian, that the son is of the same essence, of the same substance, if you will, as the father. So this is one of the first major statements that came on the scene that developed, if you will, not from scratch, not out of thin air, but developed for us the language that we now use to describe to the Christian community what we see in Scripture, which is our Trinitarian theology. Now, I'll just make this sidebar comment. Oftentimes, when Christian people wrestle with theology, they do it in reaction to something that's taking place in culture. So you'll know over the past couple of years as we fought against statism and tyranny that we, we have developed by necessity a greater clarity in our thinking about Romans 13 and about the nature of the church and its relationship to the state. And we've discussed at length, at nauseum, our sort of a political theology and that's okay. It's not that we're making things up, but you tend to lean into scripture and explore it with a, a little bit greater concern when you're confronted with an issue that's attacking something about your faith. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing that because I want the listeners to be very clear that, again, Trinitarianism wasn't made up, mm -hmm. as some would claim, at the Council of Nicaea. There was language that was brought to bear on the events of the day, but it was based upon a thorough exploration of the whole canon of scripture from beginning to end. So the purpose of Nicaea was primarily Christological. They wanted to make sure that we had a clear understanding of who Christ was, and then that factored into our view of the Trinity. So then when you fast forward in that uh, same century to 
381, so we're moving from 325 to 381. We now have the second council, the Council of Constantinople, and that was the council that brought further clarification about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So by the, by the end of that century, you now have some creedal statements on the table that people have agreed upon and wrestled, or, and these took place over many, many years, of course, to bring clarity to these subjects. So again, it would be wrong to say that these doctrines were made up. I think some Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe Mormons that reject Trinitarian theology would say, oh, you guys just made that up. You know, it was hundreds of years after Christ, you just made up the Trinity. It's like, no. The language was brought to bear on this, what we saw as error in the teachings of some and to bring clarity to what we saw in Scripture. Again, again when you read Scripture, you're not going to see the word statism mm -hmm. or totalitarianism. Those are our words to try to describe a violation of the state when it claims to control the worship and ministry of the Christian church, for example. We talk about sphere sovereignty oftentimes in our episodes. That's not in the scripture, but it's it's language that's trying to clarify some concepts that we see in scripture. So this is really critical for us to understand as we have this conversation. So the, the Trinity doctrine maintains, if you will, what Christians historically saw being taught in the word of God. Mm -hmm. I think the beauty of it is that it always goes back to the word of God. And so it's the conclusions they made in 330 or 325 and 381 are thankfully very sharp minds thought through the, the exact wording, but they're conclusions that we can draw by going back to the scriptures and looking and seeing this is what it says. That's, that's really good. So if, if I make a statement to you and I say, okay, we believe in the Trinity, like what does that mean? And I describe in my words what the Trinity is. You're like, okay, I'm going to tuck that away. Then you can go back to the word of God and you start to read it. And you're like, yeah, that, that language squares up with scripture. Now we're not, we're not trying to impose, again, very to be very clear, we're not trying to impose our language on scripture or put the language we use in systematic theology above biblical theology, the, the teachings of the word of God itself, but we're trying to describe, so there's many, many books in the Bible, and we're trying to describe what we see in the whole of scripture to put them into agreeable statements to keep us on track so that when someone steps forward and says, oh, Jesus isn't the eternal God, or there are three gods, or someone attacks you and says, you guys believe there are three gods, you can say, no, that's not what we believe in. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that's uh, of, of help to our listeners. Yeah. So to, to kind of unpack the Trinity and point back to the, the constituent parts, you might say, what, what are, for our listeners' sake, the fundamental theological building blocks of Trinitarianism? Well, the first one would be monotheism. So we are monotheists without apology. That means one Godists. We believe there is one God. In Deuteronomy 6, there is one God. We only believe in one God. I remember years ago debating Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were saying, well, you know, you believe in three gods. I'm like, no, we do not believe in three gods. We're not tri-theists. That's not what we are. We are monotheists. So the build we see in Scripture very clearly from one cover to the next, this overarching idea that there is one and only one God. Mm -hmm. At the same time, not in contradiction to that, we encounter three persons who are recognized 
as God. So we believe in one God. We see one God being declared. The Lord your God is one. But then we see three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, being recognized as God. Again, this is not a contradiction. I'm going to describe this more in a little bit. But we see God the Father being described as God. We see Jesus being described as God. We see the Holy Spirit being described as God. And the reason why we say they're persons is because there's a distinction between them. So when Jesus is praying to the Father, he's not praying to Jesus. Jesus isn't praying to Jesus. He's praying to the Father. When Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, he's not saying, I'm going to send myself by a different name. There's a, diff- there's a distinction in personhood between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is personal, a person. It's not the active force that emanates from God's hand or God's movement. Some people teach this, that if I were to take my hand and wave it through, let's say, a smoke-filled room, you would, be, you would see the smoke sort of billowing and flowing off my hand as I move my hand through the air. You can't see it in you know, air without smoke or coloring in it. But I, when I move my hand, I am moving air. And some would say, well, that's kind of like the Holy Spirit. When God moves, it's like his spiritual force emanating from his movement. We'd say, no, the Holy Spirit is worshipped. The Holy Spirit has personal attributes applied to him. Now, we would also acknowledge that this is, in a certain respect, inscrutable, which is a word that means almost impossible to understand. Mm -hmm. It's, It's difficult for us to wrap our mind around. Now, let me just talk about this for a moment before we go any further. Let's, let's think for a moment about how we learn. So as human beings, I can look across the room at Chris Eelman, and it's a subconscious thing that I do, but I immediately acknowledge that you are a man, a male human being. If someone walked in the room that was uh, a female, I wouldn't have to do a DNA test. I would acknowledge that that's a female. If a moment later a cat walked in the room, I could acknowledge that's a cat. Now, how is it that I know those things? Well, we learn in part by analogy. So, for example, over the course of our lives, from the time we're infants onwards, we're we're having experiences with the created world around us. We see a certain color. So, we set our eyes on a certain color. We may not know what that color is. We're not even necessarily fully conscious or discussing its difference from the color beside it. But... Over time, I'm like, okay, that, that's red. It's like, well, how do you know it's red? Because I know what blue looks like. I know what purple looks like, brown, gray, and so forth. I know what a male looks like because I've seen many of them in contradistinction to a female. I know what I recognize a cat because I've seen so many cats. By analogy, I can, I can compare and contrast it to squirrels and elephants and aardvarks. I'm like, no, that's clearly a cat. I can identify a table. I can put my hand on something and it's rough as opposed to being smooth. And I know it's rough because I've felt that which is smooth. I could say the room is too cold or the room is too hot because I've experienced the opposite. I know what heat is because I've experienced cold. I know what cold is because I've experienced heat. I know what sweet tastes like because I've tasted sour and, and bitter and savory. So we're learning by analogy and and we, we innately compare and contrast that which we see and that which we touch and that which we experience with everything else that we've experienced in creation. And we arrive at conclusions. Oh, that, that's a male. That's a cat and so forth and so on. Now, the temptation is to do that with God, to say, well, 
I, I, I've observed the created world. I've made observations about the created world. So I, I need to find something in creation that kind of is like the Trinity. And if I, if I can't find something in creation that's like the Trinity, well, then I don't understand it. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that is that our knowledge is limited. I, I have a brain, obviously, and powers of deduction, but I am limited. I am a created being. The, 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 the limits, the boundaries of my ability to know by my own faculties are largely limited to what I see in the created world. And we get knowledge out of the created world, empirical knowledge, natural knowledge out of the created world. But Christians also believe there's another form of knowledge, and that's called revelation. This is not drawn out of the physical world. You don't arrive at it because you're really good at math or really good at science or really good at observing the world. God reveals himself to us in special revelation, and God reveals himself to us by declaring to us that there is one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's like, what's that like in creation? It's like nothing else. The Trinity is like nothing else. And in that respect, it's difficult to understand it because I can't, I can't really equate the, the Trinity to, to anything else. So there's always a little bit of a popping in my mind. It's like I, I can't fully wrap my mind around the Trinity. It's kind of a, a, a mystery in that respect. But I've been told that this is what God is like, so I accept it by faith. Some have tried to use various illustrations. So some of them include water. Say, so, well, the Trinity is kind of like water. You know, water can take a, the form of a solid if you freeze it, obviously the form of a liquid. It can take the form of a, a gas if it evaporates. So the Trinity is kind of like that. No, it's not. No, it's not. God is not one substance in three forms. He is one in essence, one in substance, but he is three persons. Oh, it's kind of like a cherry pie. You know, there's that crispy little crust and there's there's the cherries and there's the filling. No, that's that's three ingredients to one inanimate object. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's kind of like a three-leaf clover. It's a it's a little piece of vegetation, but it has three nice little leaves sort of brought together in, in one center. No, those are three components of one object. There's nothing in creation that compares with the triune God. And therefore, we accept the teaching of the full deity of the Father, the full deity of the Son, the full deity of the Holy Spirit, but the oneness of God by faith. By faith, we don't mean we're checking our brain at the door we mean that we've received that by divine revelation. God has revealed it to us, and so we we accept that. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned learning by analogy, the first thing that came to my mind is the the prophet's description of some of their visions, and you get Ezekiel's vision and the way he describes it, and you're like, I just, I don't even know. Like he describes it like it's like this, it's like that, but it's not that. And obviously, God is so much more grand than even those visions. Yeah, that's a good uh, good thought as well. Even when you look at John's revelation, uh, John's depiction of, of future events in the book of Revelation, he's describing 
what heaven is like and how do you describe something that is without analogy in the physical world with human language that was designed and developed to describe things that are in the physical world. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just, it's difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, so we, we want to emphasize this. God is the building blocks of Trinity. We are, we are monotheists, period. But we see three persons in the Bible granted the attributes, given the ant- attributes of God, while acknowledging that there's some there's an inscrutable aspect to this. The third thing, Chris, is really important if you study scripture is that they're all worshipped. So the Magi worshipped Jesus as a child. That would have been, been a blasphemous act, an idolatrous act if Jesus wasn't God. You don't worship something that isn't God. The disciples grabbed the feet of the resurrected Christ and worshipped him. Thomas declared out loud, my Lord and my God. And by the way, I was talking to Jehovah's Witness years ago, and they said, no, no, he was just sort of saying like, OMG. It's like, really? (laughs) That would be considered blasphemous. Who would do that in Jesus' presence? And that kind of lingo didn't exist then. He was making a declaration that he understood now because Christ had conquered the grave, that Christ, in fact, was God. By the way, Jesus' opponents acknowledged his claim. They didn't agree with it. But Jesus was often attacked and ridiculed by the Pharisees. They're like, he's claiming to be God. And Jesus didn't say, oh, just a second, guys, you misunderstood me. Hold Mm -hmm. on there before you start throwing stones and running me out of town. Let me just bring clarity to this. I'm not God. He let the allegation stand. Chris, can you imagine how horrifying it would be if someone came up to you in church and said, Chris, I think you're God. And you just kind of shrugged your shoulders and walked away. Now, you'd be remiss as a minister of the gospel not to say, excuse me, no, that's absolutely false. I'm a pastor, or if you claim to be a prophet or something else, I'm this or I'm that. Jesus let the allegation stand. Think mm-hmm. about that. When they, decl- they He claims to be God. He let the allegation mm-hmm. stand. Now, we also have the fourth building block. This is really, really, really important. This is going to this is going to tie into some of our our practical implications later on. We have equality between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit on the level of their substance, on the level of their deity. So the Father is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. The eternal Son is fully God. They are three persons in one eternal essence. It's not like the father's 90% or 100% God and the son sort of gets, you know, he's 90% God and the Holy Spirit's 70% God. They're all fully and 100% God in their essence, in their authority, in their attributes even. But in terms of the way they function, okay, so this is on their functional level, the son in the incarnation And in his earthly ministry, submits himself to the will of the Father. And then the Son says, I'm going to send, that's an authoritative declaration, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So while they are one in substance, essence, in perfect unity, co-equals in essence, possessing all divine attributes, they have different levels. They function on different levels. So we could say in their being, ontology is the study of being, they're ontologically equal, but they're functionally unequal. 
Now, people are like, what? They're unequal. Yeah. On a functional level, the father wields authority over the son. The son wields authority over the Holy Spirit in their earthly ministry. And that does not mean in any way, shape, or form that if you have functional subordination, that there's ontological deficits. Functional subordination and ontological equality can go hand in hand, and mm -hmm. they do within the triunity of God. Let me give a couple analogies from life. So I am the lead pastor of this church, and I serve the church with a group of elders, and the elders, the pastors of this church, have been granted a limited measure of authority by God to oversee the ministry of the church. And so this is why the people of God are called to submit themselves to the elders who rule over them. By the way, that's a biblical word, rule, not just make suggestions, but who rule over them. Let the elders that rule well be worthy of double honor. So that's a, that's a weighty term. There's limitations to that. We have a limited job description. We don't have absolute authority over people's lives, but we do have a measure of authority over people's lives. But that doesn't mean that when I was six years old and wasn't an elder, I was lesser a lesser human, that I was less important to God, that I was insignificant in God's view or plan, that I was only a half human. So our we can have we can find ourselves in situations in life where we we acknowledge that every other human being is our ontological equal. A husband and wife are ontologically equal. So a person that's a slave and a person that's free are ontologically equal. A pastor and a deacon are ontologically equal. A parent and their infant child are ontologically equal. We are equal in our worth and value, but that doesn't mean we're functional equals. Sometimes people are granted positions of authority, so they have a functional superiority, and others are their functional subordinates. And it varies depending on what sphere you're in in life. So I might be a quote-unquote top dog in the church, but when I go out into society and I interact with the magistrate, if the magistrate is exercising his authority and staying within his sphere of authority, I must submit to him. My wife must submit to me. When our children were young, they must submit to their parents. So it's fascinating. We understand this in all of life that you're not a lesser human just because you don't have as much authority mm -hmm. in, the, in the temporal realm. And this idea is actually rooted in the way God himself functions, where it, it's fascinating, by the way, when you preach Ephesians 5 at Christian weddings, and I almost always do that, and I say to the young men and the young women, hey, you know, your marriage is actually a reflection of the gospel, and the role of the husband is to kind of role play Christ and to lead his wife with love and affection, to love her mm -hmm. as he loves his own body. And to the bride, your job is to submit yourself to the loving leadership of your husband. Christian women understand that and accept that. You know why? Because they see it as gospel. They don't say, well, do you think I'm lesser than you? 
No. Do you think you're less than the police officer that pulled you over on the side of the road? Do you think he's more of a human than you are because he pulled you over? No, because in that realm, he has authority over you. So we, we do think that the, 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 the eternal son is less God than the father because he submitted himself to the will of the father, Philippians chapter mm-hmm. two? No. So we see in the Trinity ontological equality, but we have functional subordination. We see that in marriage. We see that in the home. We see that um, demonstrated even in the, 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 the relationships that we have with the state. So we embrace that idea. And that's, that's a fundamental building block in our Trinitarian theology. One did not become the other. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct persons within one eternal essence or substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has helped me understand when Jesus is praying in the garden, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's that functional subordination, not the ontological, right? Yes. And by the way, when we talk about our Christology, when Christ took on human nature, he did not give up his divine nature, nor were his divine nature and human natures kind of squished together. So he's one, but he in his we could say in his deity for example he was omniscient but in his humanity he makes statements like you know whoever the father gives to me you know it's kind of his decision so there's in our christology now which kind of hangs off of our theology proper our our trinitarian theology we also could discuss maybe at another point the the, the natures of Christ and how those sort of uh, correlate to one another. Mm-hmm. One of the things maybe we can flesh out a bit more, you, you mentioned that they have the same attributes. They possess the same attributes. So I think we would do well to expand there a little bit. This would be actually a really good study for people to uh, do on their own. So we, when, when you look through scripture, and you can actually Google this because other people have done a lot of work for it, and just type in something like the... Um, the divine attributes shared by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure many different options will come up. So there's there's language titles that are applied to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are divine titles. So again, to use Thomas as an example, if Jesus isn't God, what you don't do is call him God. But if he is God, that's your understanding of who he is, you call him God. If Jesus had a problem with people calling him God, he would have corrected it, but he didn't. So Jesus clearly is presenting himself Mm -hmm. to the world as God. We have words like holy, H-O-L-Y, applied to the spirit, not the super, super nice spirit, not the, well, maybe a little bit better than most spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. That's a word you reserve for God. So we have language that's applied to Jesus is called a king. He Mm -hmm. entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a king. He was declared to be a king. He didn't correct everybody and say, no, 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 I'm just a vassal here. He allowed himself to be called a king, which is is language reserved for God. So we have divine titles being applied to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we also have divine attributes being applied to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I kind of went through some of those earlier. So that that makes for a, a neat 
um, study, especially if you're sitting down with like a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or someone from a non-Trinitarian cult, and they're like, Jesus isn't God and the Holy Spirit isn't God. You're like, okay, well, let's just kind of look at some of the attributes that we would all agree are reserved for God and discuss why is it that so many of these attributes and titles are applied to both the Father and the Son, both the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. It's really encouraging. Years ago, we had a lady come out to our church from a cult background that uh, denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And I remember sitting down with her and explaining through scripture and her not getting it right away, but then emailing me later, having studied scripture and gone and looked at those attributes and saying it's like a light bulb went off. Like, yes, the Holy Spirit is a person, not just an active force. Um, and so it goes back to the word. Now we want to be able to help our listeners spot the lies and understand those other cults and backgrounds. So maybe we can spend a few minutes. What are some of those cults, major false views of Trinitarian theology? There, there are many, many kinds of false teaching surrounding this concept of Trinitarianism that's that have popped up over the years. I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Arianism was one of the first, whereby the idea was is that the eternal son, the one we know as Jesus Christ, was the first of God's creation. So God, who is the Father, created him at the beginning of creation. He was sort of preeminent over creation, but he's not God. So that's that's Arianism. And as when they view Christ as the first created being, but not God, that uh, the, the Holy Spirit in, in some Aryan theologies is, is basically just like the active force of God. So the most modern example of that, Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. would be Aryans, like A-R-I-A-N. S Aryans, not like white Aryans. I think that's spelled with a Y, mm-hmm. but they're they're Aryans. I I had a fascinating summer back in um, it would have been uh, 1992. I had completed my first year of Bible college, and I actually got a job in a company refinishing concrete. Every other employee was a Jehovah's Witness, hmm. and I spent every day with them and just debated top the bottom side to side all sorts of things to do with our our faith systems and it they're very nice people and many very sincere but one thing we could not agree on is who Christ was mm-hmm. and the our the, our understanding of the basic nature of God because they deny that Jesus Christ is God so we had lots and lots of debates on that so that would be an example of a modern Arianism obviously tritheism we would reject that tritheism is the belief that there are three gods so Mormons are kind of tritheists but kind of not so let me just describe that a little bit and by the way another little story my great one of my great great grandfathers his name was Benjamin Franklin St. John he just lived about an hour down the road from here around Chatham, Blenheim, Ontario. He actually was a Mormon preacher. And he would ride that area on his uh, horse and he planted, from what I understand, a few Mormon churches. And so Mormonism sort of came into the um, the rock side of my family through his daughter and then my my grandfather. So my there's some Mormonism in my 
history. I haven't spent as much time though with Mormons as I have with Jehovah's Witnesses, but Mormons are, are an interesting group because what, what they would see is that there is a father, there is a son, and there's a Holy Spirit, but they're three separate beings. Mm -hmm. So whereas Arianism would deny the deity of Christ, tritheism would say, oh, there is a father, he's God, there's a son, he's God, there's a Holy Spirit, he's God, but they're not the same. Now, where I am hesitant to actually call Mormons tritheists is that they also teach this strange doctrine that we can become gods. So you might have heard this famous statement by one of the uh, Latter-day Saints leaders, Lorenzo Snow. He sort of lived in the um, you know the last three quarters of the, the the 19th century. He had several wives, by the way. He fostered or he fathered, I think, 42 or 43 children. <laughs> Not through one wife. I think he had seven or nine of them or something wow. like that. Quite a prolific character. But he had this famous statement, which many people have heard if they've studied Mormonism, where he says, as man is, God once was, and as God is, man can be. So he saw God sort of a being who was progressing towards divinity and now has reached divinity, but as not as one God, there's Father, there's Son, the Holy Spirit, and then and then we can also move in that direction. So the, the error there, is a blending of categories between creature and creator. So the, the creature can become creator in that respect. Mm -hmm. So we see a, a, a dramatic difference between creature and creator. So that would be a false doctrine. Modalism, sometimes called modalistic monarchianism, and there's different strands of that. Again, depending on who you talk to, but modalism is this idea that, so under dynamic monarchial modalism, they would say that God, the, the Father is God. God is the Father. So you have God, the Father, that's the one God. And the Holy Spirit and the Son are just sort of impersonal attributes of that God. But the Son is not a distinct person and he's not God. And the Holy Spirit's not a distinct person and he is not God. They're impersonal attributes of God. Hmm. And then there's another strand of that or brand of that where, and this is what people would normally think of when they think of modalism, there's one God, but he sort of comes at you with different faces. So he reveals himself in different modes, thus the word modalism. So we have one God who reveals himself, think of like my hand moving toward you, he reveals himself to you as father. Then my hand is withdrawn and my other hand comes forward. Now God is revealing himself to you as son mm -hmm. and that that hand draws back and then my hand comes forward again and now it's the spirit. So God is manifesting himself to you in various modes. There is one God, but there's not three distinct persons within God. Mm -hmm. So that's modalism. Would that almost be the same as, you know, okay, right now I'm a pastor, but I'm also a father. I'm also... Or is that a little bit different, more like? Sort of, like it's not so much about tasks or roles though. It's 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 um, modes whereby God reveals himself. Like it's like a different person shows up almost, but right. behind the scenes are the same one. Now, by the way, oneness Pentecostal. So if you ever, we're not talking about Pentecostals. Pentecostals are Trinitarian. Oneness Pentecostals are um I mean, again, there's probably different kinds, but oneness Pentecostals are typically modalists in that they would deny an orthodox view of the Trinity. Mm. 
And then another uh, lesser known false view is called docetism. And that's tied to ancient Gnosticism that sort of repudiated anything that was physical. It was all, all the physical was bad and the spirit realm was good and anything that's immaterial is good and everything that's material is bad. Docetism was the false teaching that would say that Jesus is God, but in his humanity, this is more of a Christological thing than a strictly Trinitarian thing. Jesus is God, but he, he only appeared to be human. He wasn't actually human. He sort of faked it. He pretended to be human, Hmm. but he's not actually human. So again, that's not, it's not so much of a Trinitarian heresy. It's more of a Christological heresy, but obviously it, it ties into our Trinitarian views because Christ is a person within the eternal Godhead. I want to also just say this. You don't have to remember all these words. Oh, what's docetism? It's going to be a test at the end of the day. What's Arianism? But it's really important to remember the concepts. Like sometimes I I have to go back and, okay, just remind myself again of this word. What does Mm -hmm. this word mean? But when I see the word, I recognize the concept. So what you want to do is you want to get yourself to a point in theology where even if you forget some of the theological lingo, you can s- smell the heresy <laughs> when it's coming your way, or you can hear the heresy if it if it's being preached to you, or you're reading a book, or you're, you're reading a church's doctrinal statement. You're like, that, that sounds a lot like modalism, or that sounds a lot like Arianism. You want, even if you don't remember those words, like that, that, doesn't smell right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look right. So that that's where we want our, our listeners to end up. Mm-hmm. Now, as we've talked about this, and if our listeners are paying attention, they're like, that, well, that's pretty precise. Like the difference between being and person and essence and all these different words we use. Yeah. So they want to know language because, okay, we have maybe some parents and they've maybe fallen prey to uh, using the egg analogy or the water analogy with sure. their kids. And they're like, okay, I know not to do that now. What language should we use? What should we avoid? How would you bro- approach that? Well, we'll start with your your illustration there. You mentioned the eggs, so shell, yolk, um, the whites. That might be another analogy someone would use to try to describe the Trinity. So I would just say do this. Don't use those analogies, period. It's like, oh, man, really? I like them. Don't use them because it confuses. It equates God with it, – it mushes the creator with the creation – and you're generally looking for analogies that are things. It's stuff. And God is not stuff. God is not a thing. So it's just a bad analogy to use to describe God. Just describe God using the language of the Bible. If you're talking to someone that's newer to the faith or someone that's younger, say, hey, did you notice that the Bible is very clearly teaching us there's one God? And you just kind of flesh that out. And then hey, did you notice that the Father is called God and the Son is called God and the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit's called God? And notice that the, the descriptive words, the attributes we call them, the characteristics of these three are God characteristics. Hmm, let's think about that a little bit. What we believe is that there's one God, but he manifests himself to us in three persons. And the Father's not the Son and the Son's not the Holy Spirit, and, but they're one in substance, they're one in essence. So you could just just describe it that way. I think it would also be wise to uh, not use the word parts. So you don't say there's three parts to God because that's impersonal. Mm. Say there's three persons within the triune God. 
you emphasize that these three persons are eternal, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed together as one God for all of eternity. Jesus didn't show up in Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit hovering over the surfaces of the deep didn't just show up in Genesis chapter 1. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternality attached to them. They, in their essence, have always been and always will be. So avoid words like three gods. Avoid illustrations from the created order to try to describe God. And just sequentially take people through, oh, there's there's one God. There are three persons that receive divine attributes that are, when I say receive, what I mean is they're described as such. We're not giving them to them. They're described as having divine attributes. They're called God. Jesus is called God and doesn't repudiate it by the by Thomas. He's called God and doesn't repudiate it by his pharisaical opponents. So we must conclude that he's God. So we sort of shore up this Trinitarian view. And then we could say, hey, by the way, historically Christians have called this the Trinity. Hmm. I also think it's important when people start to scratch their head and think, say, well, I, I, don't, I don't understand this. Take them back to that discussion we had earlier. We learn by analogy. It's natural for a human being to struggle to fully understand the Trinity, not because God is trying to hide something from us, but because the way we learn is often by analogy. And God doesn't have an analogous counterpart within creation. Now, it's interesting. We are made in the image and likeness of God, but it doesn't mean we're triune in that respect. We're not three persons in one, but we, we, you know, we, we steward creation. We are as co-regents. We're, we're moral beings. We have moral consciousness. We have will. We have you know, intellect. In that respect, we're made in the image and likeness of God, but we're not God, mm-hmm. and we're not going to become God, even though in, on the level of relationship, we are God's adopted sons and daughters. So mm-hmm. that's kind of helpful as well. One other thing that might be helpful just just to kind of take this idea of our learning deficits to another level is think about another created being like a, um, a rabbit. A, a rabbit is a mammal. We are mammals. A rabbit is a created being. We are created beings. A rabbit has a metabolism. We have metabolism. A rabbit has eyes and a brain and a skeletal structure and skin and flesh and organs, and we have all those things. But if you took the smartest rabbit you could find and you sat it down and you tried to teach it English, it would never work. A rabbit has a deficit in its ontology, in its being, in its design that disallows it from speaking the English language, from solving mathematical equations. And in the same way, we are limited in our capacity as well. So naturally, there's going to be certain things that God reveals to us that we can maybe maybe understand in part. So the rabbit might be conscious of the fact you're speaking to it in English. It has ears. The sound waves are going in. It can understand there's some sound coming at me, which might freak it out or might comfort it, depending on whether it's wild or tame. But there's a there's a blockage there in terms of its capacity because of what it is. And in the same way, we need to acknowledge, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you try, there are limits, there are mysteries to the Christian faith that we don't fully understand. And so we, we accept 
what we know, God is one. There are three persons that all receive divine recognition in Scripture. We're going to call this the Trinity, but we don't fully comprehend and understand that. And that's not an intellectual cop-out. That's not, well, check your brain at the door if you're going to be a Trinitarian. That's not, well, that that doesn't mathematically make sense kind of an approach. No, it's not on that level. Mm -hmm. It's acknowledging that there's a certain mystery when we receive divine revelation that we must always accept uh, because of our limited human natures. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard myself compared to a rabbit in a discussion of Trinitarians, <laughs> but it's humbling. Well, well, I have noticed that almost, did you bring carrots for lunch today? Hey, hey, hey. You did, you did, <laughs> did didn't totally. you? <laughs> okay, Chris Hillman always brings, let me, let's go through his lunch. He's a very predictable person. He has his sliced apples, his carrots, and peanut butter sandwich. Generally. Okay. <laughs> Maybe a yogurt so, and some cookies too. So there are some similarities. There's some cookies, okay. <laughs> it's good. I like to be predictable in some areas so I can surprise people in other areas. Yeah. <laughs> it's That's good. good. Okay. So why does the Trinity matter? This is like, I think this is the, the part many of our listeners are just waiting for. Okay. I, I'm not a theologian. I don't spend all my days in Bible school thinking about these exact words, but what is the take home? Why yeah. does this matter? <laughs> well, there's probably some theologians listening. Is he going to get it right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get his true. language right? And then there's other people. I don't know what he's talking about, but just tell me some practical stuff. And then hopefully we're all moving to the middle <laughs> where, yeah. you know, we value our theology and we want to grow in that, but we also are thinking about like, what, what, why did God tell us this? Why, why is this important? So this is exciting. Many reasons. Well, first of all, it's biblical. So if we're going to, be Christian and robustly Christian, we have to continually submit ourselves to biblical authority. And by submitting ourselves to biblical authority, that in and of itself is is a demonstration of humility and worship. When we just accept what God has said, that actually brings glory to God, just like the child that immediately obeys their parents instead of pushing back brings joy to their parent. So it's biblical. And that's our, you know, our main reason. It also is really important when it comes to our ruminations about relationships. One thing that's interesting and unique about human beings is we're highly relational. Now, other beings, other creatures might come together in herds or flocks or schools for protection, for reproduction, to graze an area or to pack together to hunt down prey. Human beings do come together at times for utilitarian purposes, but human beings also come together because we are innately relational beings. Even in our reproduction, in our sexuality, there's a, a, a highly developed relational aspect to that. If when, when dogs breed, it's not a relational act, it's a reproductive act. When horses breed, it's not a relational act, it's a reproductive act. But when humans mate, it is not only a re- potentially a reproductive act, but it's also a relational act. We're very relational beings. Mm. And the question is, where does that come from? We're made in the image and likeness of God. So where, where does this relationality come from? Well, it comes from God. And then God, of course, is inviting us into relationship with him. So we are called in scripture, his sons and his daughters, joint heirs. We're, we're, there's discussion about us being adopted into his family. 
We're called his family. We're called, the church is called his bride. So there's all this relational language in the scripture that's helping us to understand what it is like for us to interact with God. So now we have this idea that we're relational. God is calling us into relationships. God himself is a relational being. Now in Islamic theology, God is sort of a static one. So he's, he's monotheistic. There's no, there's not two persons or three persons or four persons within their conception of God. He existed forever as one static, unchanging being without in his ontology, in his essence, any relationality at all. So this begs the question, how is it possible? This is a little bit of philosophy mingling with theology. How is it possible in the Islamic conception of God for a God to be completely satisfied in and of himself for all of eternity with no relational aspect to his makeup to suddenly create and be in relationship with his creatures. It's like, oh, I never thought about that. It's, yeah, how, how does a non-relational being, a, a being that has related to no one, who is not triune, who's literally by his static self forever and ever and ever suddenly create space and time and enjoy relationship with, with his creatures. It's not possible actually, but the beautiful thing about God is that God is in his essence relational. The father, the son, and the Holy spirit, one God, not three gods, one God eternally functioning together in perfect unison and perfect relationship. I seem to recall when I was younger, someone telling me, well, God created us because he was lonely. It's like, eh, no, mm -hmm. God is not lonely. He didn't need us to satisfy his loneliness. God is triune. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect relational, not only ontological, but relational unity for all of, all of eternity, were then, then created the world and the God that we serve then is able to have relationship with us because in and of himself, he is a relational being. The reason why we are relational beings is not because we're triune, but because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And God creates us uniquely with a capacity. Now, our relational needs are actually dependent. Think about this. God is relational, but, it, but he's not without completion. When God created Adam in the garden, in a perfect world before there was sin, there was a deficit. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Everything's declared to be good, it was very good. Oh, it's not good that man's alone. Something was missing, so God takes him aside Eve, and we have this beautiful complementary union between Adam and Eve, where they need each other. They need to be with the other in order to be complete and in order to be satisfied. And then when sin enters in the world, our relationship with God is severed. So through Christ, he's, he's redeeming that and bringing us back into relationship with God. So I think that's really quite beautiful to take this Trinitarian understanding of God and see how it dovetails into God's capacity to have relationship with his creatures, which is unique to Christian theology. It's actually unique to mm -hmm. Orthodox Christian theology. Mm -hmm. One question I had as you're speaking this out that people have asked me before, and I, I think I've answered pretty accurately, but I want to get your take on here. When it comes to our prayer, 
to God. Should we pray to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? What's your What's your takeaway on that? Yeah, that's a good question. So we we do pray to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're praying to the Father, the Son, and the Holy. We're praying to God as one God. But in terms of the formula of prayer, when we understand the the role of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in God's redemptive purposes and in our salvation and in our relationship, we pray to the Father. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf, uh, you know, with groans and you know, when we when we can't articulate or we can't even put into words necessarily what it is we're actually praying for, and we we want access to the Father, the Spirit being. The Holy Spirit makes that possible to, to make it sort of to simplify it. And the, the eternal son functions as our intercessor, intercessor, our divine Lord, lawyer of sorts, representing us to the father. So in when we are praying, we're, we're praying to toward with, if you will, in the direction of the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. But we would generally open our prayers with you know, dear father or heavenly father. That's what we see modeled in the um, Lord's prayer. Now, you know, every once in a while, I might hear someone pray, you know, dear Jesus. I don't be, I don't like stop the prayer or dear Holy Spirit. And I don't know if I hear that too much, but dear Jesus, you know, I don't stop the prayer because we are praying to father, son, and the Holy Spirit. But in terms of the formula of prayer, which is extracted from our broader theology of prayer, we pray to the father. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit and Christ, as I mentioned, are, you know, involved in that, um, making the connection, interceding in our behalf mm-hmm. in, in ways that we, we don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to do. If you're listening to this and you come out of a Roman Catholic background, one of the beauties that I hope you're discovering in biblical Christianity is that we don't have to go through another priest. We don't have to go through the Catholic priest or the bishop in order to confess our sins or make our confession or petition God. We have access to Christ as priests on our own through our high priest who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really, really important. That's something that... uh, differentiates biblical Christianity from from Roman Catholicism. And I know that many Roman Catholics who come to a more biblical understanding of Christ and salvation often really appreciate that that Mm -hmm. idea that we are priests, Christ is the high priest, and we have direct access to him through prayer to the Father, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's good. Very good. Yeah. So I have a couple other things I just want to touch on. So you you kind of brought it up, but I did, I did uh, want to discuss our theology of prayer. So when Trinitarianism does affect our theology of prayer, so we have this mental notion, sort of this image of the, the creature petitioning the creator, and it's like, is that possible for him to hear me? Does he hear my prayer? And we have this beautiful theology of the Holy Spirit who's indwelling us, and he's illuminating our minds to truth and he's rebuking us and he's convicting us and and enabling us to intercede with God and we have this beautiful image of the eternal son beside at the right hand of the father 
with pierced hands and a sword mark, a spear mark in his side, representing a, a, th- all of his perfection, which has been applied to us. So there's this Trinitarianism makes prayer more beautiful. We have this visual image of having access to the Father as 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 Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in our praying and our our worshiping. And by the way, in our worship, we don't just worship the Father. We worship the Son. We worship the Holy Spirit. We worship the the triune God uh, together as as one. Finally, we sort of touched on this earlier. When you finally understand this basic Trinitarian concept of ontological equality, but functional inequality, functional superiority, it really is quite helpful in your human relationship. So let's say you are a young woman and you're entering into Christian marriage and you want to honor God, but you're coming out of a culture that has said, women are equal in every way. Don't ever let your husband try to take charge. Don't let him lead you. He is not the head of head of your house. You are just accountable to God or you're accountable to whoever. You're accountable to yourself. Well, the, those errors are corrected when you look at Christ and you're like, actually, Christ valued submission. Your Savior valued submission. Your Savior submitted himself to the will of the Father. Mm. Your Savior condescended and was incarnate in human flesh and went to a cross, even though in his humanity he was praying, Lord, if it if it be your will, take this from me. Still, he submitted himself to the will of, of the Father. Well, if your Savior can submit to the will of the Father without in any way, shape, or form having his deity reduced or removed or taken away, why is it so difficult for a creature to submit to another creature that God has placed over them to lead them? And what we got to do is we got to get rid of this idea that submission is a dirty word. Mm-hmm. We, we got to get rid of this idea that the church, when it gathers, is a democracy. No, there's authority structures in the church. Qualified elders, men, not every man, but men who've, who've met the biblical qualifications in the pastoral epistles. Not women, but men. Not every man, but men who meet the biblical qualifications mm-hmm. in the pastoral epistles have been called to humbly and lovingly exercise authority over the Christian church, not because they're better than everyone else, not because they're closer to Jesus, not because they have more Holy Spirit, not because they have bigger gold-gilded Bibles with velvet bookmarks in them, not because they have their MDiv, but because they've been called by God to oversee the church for a period of time. And we should be okay if we're not in those roles submitting to those men. We should be okay submitting to the state when the state is functioning as God's deacon, overseeing public justice, penalizing the wicked, and rewarding the righteous. We should have no problem with that. Our Savior did that. It doesn't mean that you are lesser human any more than Christ's submission to the Father means that he was lesser God. He's fully God. So in the triunity of God, we have a lesson about equality and inequality. You can be functionally equal or you can be, I should say, ontologically equal, 
but functionally in different roles, you know, different rungs on the ladder, so to speak. And that's okay. And this, this whole idea of submitting to one another, again, is modeled for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's, it's really mind-boggling in many respects that many people, for instance, argue for egalitarianism between men and women or argue for radical democracy in the local church because they're so hung up on this idea of equality when in the triunity of God himself, we see something very different. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 100% God, absolutely unified in one essence, functioning in eternal relationship as three persons, three distinct persons in submission in the redemptive work that Christ did and the work that the Spirit did at Pentecost. That's a beautiful thing. We embrace that. And there's some analogies or some tie-ins as to how we relate to each other in the, in the created realm in terms of our submission to one another. So I think that's pretty awesome. I've benefited from that. It certainly impacted my outlook on relationships and prayer and my ability to approach God, knowing he is a relational God and my worship and most importantly, my submission to the word of God, which presents God without using the word as a triune being that rules heaven and earth to whom I willfully and joyfully submit. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Aaron, for that detailed explanation of the Trinity. For our listeners, you can hear this podcast over at the Pursuit of Glory website that Pastor Aaron has, pursuitofglory.org. You can check it out there or on the CJXC radio or on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network's uh, app. So lots of different ways to to hear it. Make sure to follow Aaron on social media, on Facebook, uh, Twitter. And I don't think he's on Instagram yet, but no Instagram for him. That's not going to happen. Okay, that's not happening. So make sure to follow him on social media, though, and, uh, and make sure that you tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.